You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So, I want to tell you a story here as we get started in God's Word. Um, This is a family portrait of my family, in case you didn't, you know, connect the dots. Yeah, anyway, so this was 14 years ago. We took a family portrait yesterday, and there are all adults. There are five adults in that portrait we took yesterday. So it's been a lot of years here at Grace. And for those of you who have been here over the length of that time, it's been a lot of sermons from me that you have heard. As your lead pastor, this is my 500th sermon since I've been, yeah, wow. You're very kind, thank you. There's some of you, you know, you've experienced those, you've endured those, whatever, you know, descriptor you want to put at the end of that, but it's a lot of sermons. And many years ago, 14 years ago, when this picture was taken and we first came to Grace here as a young family, um, I wasn't sure how to catalog and keep track of my sermons, so I just thought I'd start numbering them, and that's how I know this is number 500. Now, I've never used that numbering system in all the years I've been here. You know, if I'm looking for something or trying to reference something, I'll think, okay, have I ever preached Genesis 37? I don't go, well, yeah, that was sermon number 43. I better go back and look at that. But I thought that was kind of fun, 500 sermons. And there are some common denominators that run through all those sermons. Um, it's, it's a privilege to get to preach God's word and teach God's word and to be with you. Um, every time I study God's word, it, it just comes alive to me. And there are stories sometimes that are very familiar to me that somehow God through his spirit provides insight or new things that I learn. And so I just, I love that. And some sermons have come very easily because the text has been really clear and other sermons have been difficult and they've, they've been tough. In fact, I remember years ago um, that one sermon in particular, it got to Saturday night and I was still working on it at about nine o'clock. The spirit seemed to tell me, yeah, you need to go a different direction with this. And I completely rewrote my sermon on a Saturday night. Thankfully, that has not happened very often. But I love God's word. And once again, we come to a story that is very familiar to many of you. And my hope is that it comes alive for you the way it has come alive for me this week as I've studied and learned from it and as we learn from it once again together. How many of you have heard or are familiar with the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis? And that's where we're gonna go. The rest of Genesis from here is pretty much gonna be about Joseph and his story. There's some brief interludes, but he is the focal point of the rest of Genesis. So we're gonna dive into this story together and for those of you who this may be new to or our friends who are listening online, maybe you've missed some sermons, but to catch you up real quickly, over the previous weeks we've seen Jacob being told by God to leave Uncle Laban and to go back to the promised land and so he does and along the way, if you were with us last week, Gary took us through the passages that illustrate and describe Esau coming to meet Jacob. It's been 20 years since they've crossed paths. They parted on bad terms. Esau literally wanted to kill Jacob for stealing his birthright and the blessing from him. And when they meet, Esau does this incredible act of forgiveness and this act of grace and mercy, completely forgives Jacob. They're, they're reconciled. Jacob then goes on to live in Shechem, And then God tells him to go back to Bethel. So he goes back to Bethel. And then he eventually settles in Hebron where his um, father Isaac is. And Isaac dies there. And on the way to Hebron, 
Um, Rachel passes away as well. And so all that happens, and now we pick up the story 10 years after all that. So it's been 10 years since Jacob has come back to Hebron and to the promised land. And this is where we start in, with Genesis 37. So Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, there is so much swimming around in this passage. Let's just begin to peel, out, peel back some layers here. You see some family dynamics beginning to play themselves out in this story. So let's see who's in the room this morning. How many of you are the oldest sibling in your family? Okay, the responsible ones, thank you. How many of you are in the middle somewhere? You are the middle child, you are our justice people. It is not fair, you're gonna make it fair, okay? And then how many of you, like Joseph, are the youngest? Yeah, you're, you're my people for sure. I am the youngest in my family. I have five sisters, and I am the only boy, and I am also the youngest, and I got away with murder, as the youngest often do. And so we're looking at this story, and it sure looks like this is what's going on here. This looks like some good old-fashioned sibling rivalry, but we're told there is a whole lot more going on here than just that. When it delineates that Joseph was with his brothers and points out again who their moms were, these are his half-brothers. And if that wasn't enough, this family has been horribly conflicted ever since we've been introduced to them. Do you remember that Rachel and Leah were constantly at odds with one another and the same is true for their kids. And so now the youngest, he's actually the second youngest, but he's the youngest for all intent and purposes on our story here, Joseph, he brings dad a bad report about his brothers. Now we don't know what the bad report was. Was it they were being lazy and not tending the flock? You know, did they have their phones out taking selfies and Snapchatting and, you know, just being, you know, well, we don't know what was going on. This is what we do know, that things are not good, and you're about to see that they're going to get even worse. So now Israel, which is another name for Jacob, Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. Now, there's a lot swimming around in here. There's this favoritism that is very clearly being played out. And this actually goes back to Jacob's roots. Remember Isaac and Rebekah? Isaac favored Jacob's brother Esau, and Rebekah, mom, favored Jacob. And that set up this natural rivalry, inflamed this resentment between the two brothers. And Jacob favors Rachel, the woman he originally wanted to marry. But remember, Uncle Laban tricked him into marrying Leah. And so these two sisters were at odds and rivals with one another. And so when it says that Joseph had been born to him in his old age, that is true. Rachel bore children later in her life. But it also is inferring here, this is his favorite son from his favorite wife. If that wasn't enough, it clearly says he loves Joseph more than the other sons and he has this ornate robe for him. Now, many of you who are familiar with this story have heard this described as a coat of many colors. 
It could be translated that way. This word in the original language is difficult for us to understand what it's really saying. We're not really sure. Was it a coat of many colors? Actually, a lot of scholars have moved away from that. But what we do know is that this was a coat that showed his favor and his status among his brothers. This is like, in your family, dad giving you a sports car to drive around and your siblings don't get that at all. How well would that go over? Not real well. So there's this natural resentment that's been brewing and now it gets intensified and it's actually gonna go from bad to worse here. So when his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now in the original language, this word for hate means, yeah, they hated him. It means they loathed him. There was open hostility between them and Joseph. And watch the progression here. So Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they what? They hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheave rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. How well would that go over among your siblings? His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they what? They hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now there's a lot swimming around in here as well. When I would walk into the room with my sisters, oftentimes I would come into the room and I would say, no need to fear, the great one is here. (laughs) And they hated it. And it's why I did it. And you know what's amazing is that that probably didn't happen in your family. You know, you guys didn't act like that with your siblings, I'm sure. But the amazing thing is, no one had to teach me how to do that. I never had to go to little brother school to learn how to be a proverbial little brother. I just knew how to do that, which is proof I have a sin nature. And so do you. There's this brokenness that resides in all of us. We all start out in the same place apart from God. We are broken, we are sinful, we tend to be selfish, and yes, we tend to be prideful, but there is more than pride and punching buttons that is going on here. There's also this dynamic. You have all this conflict going on in the family, but what he says here is profoundly offensive, and this is why. In a Near Eastern culture that is an honor-shame culture, the younger always bows to the older. Children always honor their parents. Parents always show great honor to their aged parents. And for him to say that they will bow down to him as the younger brother is profoundly offensive. It's not just prideful, it's culturally offensive, it's communally offensive, and in many ways they would consider that to be profoundly shameful. Who in the world do you think that you are? This is more than just pride here. So then he has another dream, and he told it to his brothers, and at this point, I'm reading this going, Joseph, you know, okay, pull out. No, be quiet, don't do this. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? 
will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, no kidding, but his father kept the matter in mind. And again, there's some layers to this as well. It's really fascinating that Jacob, in his rebuke of his son, his favorite son, because now dad's not real happy with him either, calls upon the memory of his mom. Rachel has been dead for over 10 years. And what this is inferring is exactly what we saw in these earlier verses. His dad is rebuking him because he's saying that he's gonna be greater than all his ancestors, including his, his mom, who's no longer on the scene. Again, this is profoundly offensive. Now he's got dad upset with him. But this is what's really interesting at the end here. It says that Jacob kept the matter in mind. This is a very similar word construction if we fast forward thousands of years to the New Testament when it says Mary would ponder things in her heart, would treasure things in her heart that Jesus said or did. That's exactly what's going on here. Dad is basically saying, and the narrator's helping us see, that Jacob's thinking, there's probably something to this. This is more than my son being arrogant or being totally inappropriate. Maybe there's something here. Yeah, there's gotta be something here. So the story shifts a little bit. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm gonna send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. And then he sent him off from the Valley of Hebron. So you need to remember just geographically, and we won't do a map here, but it's several days journey from Hebron, which is down in Israel to get on up to where Shechem is and where they were in previous years and where they were grazing the flocks now. So this is a multi-day journey that Joseph is about to take. And it's no small place where he's headed in terms of geography. There's a lot of land where they could be grazing the flocks. So he arrives at Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields, which basically is another way of saying, yeah, he was lost. That's what that word wander means. He's lost. He doesn't know where they are, so he's wandering around looking for them. And this man asks him, what are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brother's. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here. How's this guy supposed to know? Big area, a lot of people. The man answered, oh, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Now, how do you think they saw him from a distance? What was he wearing? This coat. He's driving up in the sports car. Very easy to see him. But look at the progression and how quickly things have moved. First they resent him, then they're embittered towards him, then they hate him, and now what do they wanna do? They literally want to kill him. Here comes the dreamer. Now, that is not Joseph's screen name. That is mocking. Here comes the dream master, which is literally what that means. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben, who is the oldest brother, heard this, 
He tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. We know some of what's going on here because the narrator helps us see that Reuben is trying to intercede on behalf of his younger brother there, on behalf of Joseph. He's trying to save his life. But we're not fully sure what's motivating this. Is it just because he was the older brother? Or could it be that where it tells us in Genesis 35, Reuben does this unspeakable, outrageous act of brokenness and sleeps with Bilhah, one of his stepmoms, Jacob's wife, and he's already in the doghouse with dad Jacob. So maybe he's trying to make up for that. We, we don't know what his full motivation was, but what we do know is he tries to intercede on behalf of Joseph. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty and there was no water in it. All the language here is violent. When it says they stripped him, it's like the way you would skin an animal. They rip off this multicolored coat, the source of their resentment in part, or whatever it is, the ornate coat. They took him, they grab him, and they literally throw him into this cistern. Now, when we were in Israel some years ago, we got to see some cisterns. This is a cistern that was in the city of Jericho, the oldest city in the world, by the way, by far. And then we saw this cistern. So they come in different shapes and sizes. This was a really large one. This was a cistern for an entire community. But you can get a feel for, if you get tossed into one of these, yeah, you're not climbing back out without help. You're trapped. And it was reasonable and plausible for a cistern to be empty at this time of year because the water had been used up. So this gives us a better feel of of what this looks like. So now imagine this picture. They stripped Joseph, and many scholars believe that they not only took his coat, but they stripped him naked, which would have added further shame and humiliation to him. They throw him, presumably naked, into this cistern. He's crying out for help, crying for mercy, crying for them to reconsider, and what do they do? They sit down and have a meal. As they can probably, presumably, hear their brother pleading with them for his life. So they sat down to eat this meal. They look up, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah, okay, middle child, one of them, said to the brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Okay, this is looking hopeful. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. Hey, if we're gonna get rid of him, we'll as make some money. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. How noble, Judah. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. 20 shekels of silver was about two years of wages from what we can guesstimate through archaeology and history. It's about two years worth of wages they're getting by selling their brother and they're gonna divide it presumably 10 ways. So when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. Now a couple things here. Number one, somewhere along the line here, Reuben left them. So now he's come back and he can't find Joseph. And by tearing his clothes, that was a cultural expression of grief, of... Um, tragedy 
of being upset. And so he goes back to his brothers and says, the boy isn't there, where can I turn now? And then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All cultural expressions of grief. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And so his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Ironically, if the brothers were hoping that having Joseph out of the picture would better their relationship with their dad, would give them more of dad's attention and focus, dad is even more emotionally and relationally distant than he ever has been from them in his, in his grief. Man, what a dark story. And yet there is so much here for us and there is real hope for us here as well. But we gotta start where the story starts and that's really with the depth of sin that we see here, the depth of brokenness. Recently my family and I were watching this one show on Netflix, it was about earthquakes and volcanoes, whatever, and up came this picture of Mount St. Helens. How many of you were around when Mount St. Helens blew? A number of you, and I know there are a number of you who said, yeah, I read about that in Wikipedia or you know, a history book or something, but for those of us who were there, or around rather, I was a kid during that time, you saw this imagery, these still pictures of Mount St. Helens, and you could see this bulge that began to form many, many weeks before it blew, and it got bigger, and it got tangibly bigger, and it wasn't a question of if, Mount St. Helens was gonna blow. We knew it was gonna blow. It's just a question of when, and this is a, a picture of uh, some time-lapse photography of when it actually did blow, and I know our friends listening to this or online can't see it, but, but you can go and Google these kinds of pictures, but it, it blew. It built, it built, and it blew, and that's exactly what we see happening with the brokenness and the sin in this family. It has been building and building and building, and now it begins to blow. Let's think back to just some of the roots of this. Jacob, favored by his mother, not favored by his father. So he was on both ends of that continuum. He knows what it's like to be favored. He knows what it's like to not be favored. Everything happens with Uncle Laban and tons of brokenness there outside of Jacob's control for sure. But Rachel becomes his favorite wife and so he favors her and favors her kids, and that creates resentment in the family. And then we see how Jacob responds to losing Joseph. Some of you have walked that path. You've lost a child. I cannot imagine the pain and the grief and the heartache from that. Don't even pretend to know. But I think the narrator is helping us see some things here. And I, this is just me, but this is how I see the bigger mosaic of what's being portrayed here. Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, and that's really, really clear. And then when he loses him, he's absolutely shattered. And the way this is painted is he's shattered for the rest 
of his life. And again, I can't imagine the pain and the heartache that someone endures in that kind of a situation as a parent, what some of you have had to walk or are walking. But I think this is also a picture of some idolatry that is going on in Jacob's life. Idolatry is when we take a good thing and we make it the ultimate thing. And in our brokenness and our sinfulness, we all have a propensity to do this with things in our life. John Calvin, the great church father, wisely observed, the human heart is an idol-making factory in its brokenness. We will constantly do battle with good things in our lives that we want to make ultimate things. And what that tangibly looks like is we will look to things for things that we should be expecting from God, not from those things themselves. Let me give you some examples. This happens in marriages where a spouse will look to another spouse for needs they can't possibly meet because only God can meet those needs. Those needs, And yet in their brokenness, they keep going back and putting those expectations on that spouse. Or we will do that with other members of our family. Or we will do that with friends. We will expect friends to be something that they're never going to be able to be for us. Or it doesn't just have to be in relationships. We can do this with things, a job, becomes the focal point of our life. Or money becomes the focal point of our life. Or sex becomes the focal point of our life. Our culture so worships the idolatry of sex, they have redefined marriage. They're trying to redefine everything possible in order to look for something they're never going to find there. We can do this with stuff. We can do this with our health. We can do this with our weight, with food. I mean, you fill in the blank. We can make something the ultimate thing and look for something from that that we can only get from God and we do it over and over and over again because in our brokenness, we look to things or people or stuff for something they were never intended to give us because our deepest needs are met in and through God and God himself. And so we constantly have to look for those things that we elevate to God's place and to move them aside and to demote them to where they should be, a good thing but not the ultimate thing in our life. So here's the question for you and me. When is the last time you allowed the Holy Spirit to search your heart for idols that you have elevated to a place they shouldn't be? This isn't the only depth of sin and brokenness we see in this story. We see the reality of this brokenness in Joseph's brothers. Look at the resentment. Look at the bitterness. Look at the hatred. And then literally wanting to take his life. And this is one of the realities of sin and brokenness that we see constantly played out. And that's this. Sin and brokenness never stays the same. We try to ignore it, we try to minimize it, we try to contain it, we try to accommodate it, but it will never stay in its place. It always grows. In the New Testament, the first chapter of James talks very explicitly and directly about this. Sin always grows, it never stays the same, and we see a progression of sin and brokenness here. And sin always affects more than just us. Gary Brashear surfaced this for us and helped us see this last week in the passages we looked at. We buy into this lie that sin, brokenness, only affects me. It's just about me and my choices. No, it's not. What happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas, as Gary rightfully said last week. 
Your sin, my sin, our brokenness always affects more than us. It affects our relationships. It even affects our community. What they are setting in motion with Joseph now is literally going to affect and impact the fate of the entire nation, the future of the entire nation. But in the midst of all that, we also see this, the work of God. Where is God mentioned in this story? Where is God's name stated in this story? You look back through the verses we just looked at together, you will not find it. Seemingly, God is nowhere in this story. He is never mentioned, not even once. So Joseph is all alone. Or is he? I mean, think about this for a minute. Those final verses end the story really quick and they leave us on a cliffhanger that we're going to come back to in a couple weeks. But Joseph is now in Egypt. It's easy to read that and go, ah, well, well, that's a bummer. No, 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 no. He has lost everything. He has been betrayed and humiliated and ridiculed and discarded by his brothers. He's now been enslaved. He goes to a foreign culture where he doesn't speak the language, know the customs, probably doesn't know the food. I mean, the closest thing we can, we can think of relating to with this is someone who's a refugee. You know, we're sending a team over to Lebanon to, to work with refugees in Lebanon. Think of the, the Syrian people who have literally lost everything. They will probably never, ever be able to return to their own country. They're in a foreign country. Everything has been stripped from them. They have nothing and this is their life, we'd say, man, that is, that's horrible. That's exactly what's happened to Joseph. Joseph here. And where is God? Because interestingly, by contrast, many hundreds of years later, in the book of Kings, God will show up in an amazing way in this very place. Some of you are familiar with this story, but if you jump to 2 Kings chapter 6, Israel is at war with Syria and the Syrians have a far bigger army, they're far more powerful, and they're hunting the king of Israel and the army, and they keep staying a step ahead of them because Israel has this prophet named Elijah who God keeps speaking to, and Elijah keeps counseling the king, okay, move here, move there, and the Syrian army cannot catch up with them, but finally, the Syrian king and the Syrian army find out where the king of Israel and his army are, and so they encamp around the city, and things are looking desperate. They're outnumbered, what are they gonna do? And this is where the story picks up in second. King 6, don't be afraid, the prophet Elijah answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Who are the ones with us? Elijah prays, open his eye, Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Pretty cool. Wouldn't that have been cool to see? God clearly at work explicitly work in this same region, this same area. Now here's the question for you and me. Which God would you prefer? The God who shows up with the chariots of fire and the horses? Or the God who is never mentioned in the story and who seems to have left the scene? Well, it's kind of a trick question. And it's based on a false perception, a false presupposition. That assumes that God is only working in one of the stories and present in one of the stories. Isn't God working in both stories? Who were the dreams from? God 
And Joseph happens to find a stranger who happens, among all those people there, happens to know where his brothers went. That's interesting. And Joseph happens to be taken to a country where he's going to be enslaved and his life preserved rather than a country, and there were countries around there where he would have been immediately killed. God at work? Absolutely, in both stories. Please understand, and please let this sink in, God's silence does not mean his absence. God is seemingly silent in this story, but he's not, and he's not absent. Because the reality is, we are broken people who live in a broken world, and there will be seasons in your life, you may be in one now, where it seems like God has left the scene. He's silent. He doesn't seem to be answering your prayers. When you read the word of God, it feels kind of stale and lifeless and like you're, you're grinding gears and going through the motions. And however you want to describe that, it feels like God is silent. That doesn't mean he's absent. And it's not a question of if you'll go through a season like that. It's a question of when. So what is life like for Joseph? I mean, how does he feel? what's ultimately going to come of this? Well, we begin to see a pattern that we see all throughout Scripture here, and it's this pattern of salvation or the hope of salvation. Genesis to Revelation, salvation is always preceded by suffering because we are broken people living in a broken World. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What is going to happen because of the way Joseph is going to suffer, because of all the things we've seen happen to him, the things that are going to continue to happen to him? What's going to happen ultimately when he and his brothers meet up again? Instead of taking their lives as he can, and many would say he should, He's going to save their lives because of what he's endured, because of how God has used that, his suffering, his difficulty, to shape him. You see, the reality is Joseph is never alone in this story. And if you know God, if you have received him into your heart through his son, Jesus Christ, then he'll never leave you either. And if that wasn't enough, This salvation that we're going to see here in the coming weeks when Joseph literally saves not only his family but the entire nation of Israel is a salvation that points to a greater salvation because you see someday there will be a greater Joseph who will be betrayed, discarded, cast aside, who will literally be sold, beaten, left to die, and everyone will turn their backs on him. And because of what he suffers on behalf of all people, he will bring salvation through his life. The greater Joseph is Jesus Christ. And this points to that. Every book in the Bible, in some way, shape, or form, points to Jesus, to this God who offers salvation to those who don't deserve it. 
to this God who offers a way out to those who are broken, who constantly run to or elevate good things to ultimate things in their lives when they were created for right relationship with the one true God. That is the God who we worship here. And as our worship team comes forward and as we celebrate this amazing God who all the times we have wronged him, we have ignored him, we have defied him, we have disobeyed him, we've turned our backs on him, he forgives us, he offers us grace and mercy, he offers a way out from our brokenness. The grace of God is never a license for us to continue in our brokenness and sin. The grace of God is always the escape from sin. And so this morning as we celebrate and remember communion together, we celebrate a God who gives second and third and fourth and fifth chances, who loves us and who proves that love by laying down and sacrificing his life for us so that we can be freed from our brokenness and live the very lives we were created to live. The lives that we're most looking for in our brokenness can be had through right relationship with him through knowing Jesus Christ. Communion underscores all this. So I'm gonna invite our leadership to come forward and to prepare these elements for you and this is what we're gonna do. Would you come forward and receive these elements? But this isn't like standing in line at a cafeteria. As you come forward, would you make this mean something? Between you and God with whatever this looks like for you, would you allow him to put his finger on anything that you've made an idol in your life And would you break it, smash it? And if it's a good thing, then demote it to being a good thing and not the ultimate thing in your life. And would you remember what he's done for you as as you come forward? You're basically saying yes to Jesus all over again. I mean, yes, if you've invited him into your life, you know him, you've experienced him, but following him is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour process of choosing to trust and obey him even when it feels like he's left the scene. So will you renew that trust in him again? So please come forward, receive these elements. The bread is gluten-free, all of it, so you don't need to worry about that. If you're sitting next to someone who can't get the elements or it's difficult for them to get forward, would you get elements for them and bring it back to them? And let's worship together. Jesus, thank you what these elements symbolize, that you are the God who makes us new. You are the God of second chances. You are the God who calls us out of darkness into your light and offers us grace and hope and mercy. Thank you, Lord. We remember you now, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's celebrate communion together. Communion is so significant and so special for us because it looks back on what God has done. It looks to the here and now with what God is doing, and it looks to our future for when he comes back and completes his work of redemption and setting everything back to the way it was always intended to be. But now we look back together in what it says in Matthew, where it says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. So let's remember him together. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from all of it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's remember that as well.
Thank you, Lord, that our brokenness attracts your grace, that owing us nothing, you give us everything. You cleanse us, you forgive us, you give us a future, you give us hope in the here and now. We are so grateful for what you have done for us, Jesus. If there is anyone listening to this, anyone here who has not made that defining moment choice to trust you, would they choose to do that now? Because there's nothing better than knowing you and loving you and being in right relationship with you and one another. We are grateful, Lord, for all that you've done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. What we sang there comes right out of the Gospel of John 14.6. I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I hope that you have his life within you. Because if you don't, you're not really living life. You're settling. And what he wants to give you is himself. And he is the greatest blessing we could ever have. And one of the lies of the evil one is that in those seasons where God is silent and he seems to be absent, is that you're in it alone. No one understands. No one feels like you do. No one gets it. Well, for starters, God gets it, but also he calls us to community. And we get it. And we want to do life with you. We have prayer teams up here off to the sides. We would love to pray with you about whatever you're up against today. We invite you, if you're new to Grace or newer to our church family, to join us at next down the hallway because we do life in community. And if this is your church home, man, one of the quickest ways to find community is to roll up your sleeves and do something as a community. Will you join us for Vacation Bible School? It won't just be others you are blessing. You will be blessed. I guarantee it if you choose to do that. But let me pray his blessing over all of you before we go here. God, thank you that your word is powerful and effective, that it exposes our hearts, that it goes right to the core, and that you give hope and you renew trust and you renew life. God, thank you that you give us all these things and that when you're silent, it does not mean you're absent. You promise to never leave or forsake us, even when we're not seeing you or experiencing you or even hearing from you. You're, you're still at work. Would we anchor ourselves to that truth? Because you are the way, you are the truth, you are the source of life. Would we believe that? And now as we go, would we go live that? And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. So glad you were here. Hope to see you next week. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.